Good evening, uh, my name is James Smith. It's great to have you here with us. Two years ago, I was running in the bush um, on the Great North Walk up by the Hawkesbury. And it was a beautiful day, a bit like today, really. It was in the morning, sunshine, and I was feeling good. About 90 minutes into my run, I sort of lost my way. I was on an unfamiliar trail, and it took me about another 20, 30 minutes to get back on track, by which point I was tired, it was getting hot, I'd run out of water. And then I hit the wall. Now, I don't know if you any, run any marathons here, but the wall is a colloquial term for glycogen depletion in your muscles. And I literally could not take another step. And I crumpled into the dirt. And I looked at my mobile phone and I had no signal. And these sort of thoughts went through my mind of, you know, the media, uh, headlines, missing church minister found wandering in the bush, you know, mumbling words later identified as Psalm 23. All these strange things went through my mind. I got, eventually got back to my feet. And two hours later, I sort of stumbled out into Barawa, found my way to a cafe, and I drank the best Coke ever drunk in the history of humankind. But it wasn't just a physical shock. It was a psychological one. Because it was totally unexpected. Nothing like this had ever happened to me before. I was feeling good. I felt I'd nailed this trail running thing, and then wham, I was hit by a wall. And I don't know, as I said, whether any of you have had that kind of experience before, but perhaps you have had an experience where you suffered a blow that came from nowhere. Maybe it was physical, maybe it was psychological. Perhaps it was a serious diagnosis that you weren't expecting because, you know, you didn't show any symptoms. That is the shock that the gospel passage we just had read out would have been to the original audience, particularly if there were Pharisees amongst them. Because they would have felt that they understood God's law. They'd come to terms with it. If not a walk in the park, it was a bit like a jog in the bush. And Jesus then comes along, reveals its true meaning, and they get the shock of their lives. And maybe if you were hearing that message read today, well, it did shock you because it's hard-hitting stuff. And if you think, well, you know, I feel quite comfortable in the Christian life, I've got it sorted, then Jesus' blunt statements would have rattled you at least. We're partway through the Sermon on the Mount. Gathered around Jesus are the, the disciples, 12 and others. He's teaching them about the kingdom, his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. He's listed countercultural values that he expects those in the kingdom to display, spiritual poverty, meekness, mercy, etc. He says his kingdom people must be the salt and light in the world. And in our passage today, like any good sermons, he moves from 
Theology to application, from abstract to concrete. The theme is the same, the kingdom of heaven. But now he's describing the kingdom life in detail. And this is when the full impact of what he's been saying really comes home. It's where the rubber hits the road. And today we will feel the full weight of what he has to say. And initially, at least, it won't be very pleasant. But hang in there. Because although we will get to some pretty dark places, we shall end in the sunlit uplands, I promise you. Because Jesus will paint a picture of life in the kingdom that is glorious. It's not based on rules. It's based on relationships. Relationships within the family, with friends, in society, that are respectful, that are selfish, selfless, shall I say, that are loving. Life in the kingdom is about relationships, and that's why Jesus addresses three topics that concern human relations at their ethical extreme. Murder, adultery, and lying. And for each, he takes a similar approach. He starts with the Old Testament law. So verse 21, you've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Verse 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And verse 33, again, you've heard it said to the people, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. Now, initially, you might think, well, nothing radical here. No problem here. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't slept with anybody other than my spouse. And I haven't broken any oaths. I'm looking pretty good. But then comes the sting. But I tell you, three times, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed the adultery with her in his heart. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Triple whammy. And in each case, Jesus takes the Old Testament law and he intensifies its demands. The prohibition against murder is intensified to don't be angry. Don't commit adultery to don't lust. Don't break oaths to Speak the truth. Now, for those of you who were here several years ago when we ran through the Ten Commandments, this idea of identification should be ringing some bells. Do you remember we used this image? The Old Testament law is the white light, a beam of white light that hits the prism of Jesus Christ, his life, his teaching, his death and resurrection, and it's refracted. Jesus is the new Moses, the new lawgiver. And under the new covenant, some laws remain unchanged, but others are refracted and made more intense. So here, the sixth commandment against murder, the seventh against adultery, and the ninth against perjury are all intensified by Jesus. But why? Why does he do this? In this teaching, Jesus reveals what underlies the law. 
The Pharisees and teachers of the law have been misinterpreting Scripture, contaminating it with their oral traditions and blunting it, quite frankly, so it could be managed. It was then sort of doable, with some effort, yes. Jesus is correcting their errors, overturning their interpretations, revealing what the original law was getting at, what righteousness really is. And he does that by internalizing God's law, internalizing it. Jesus is saying righteousness is not about what we don't do. Frankly, that's not even the bare minimum. Righteousness is above and beyond merely avoidance of law-breaking. In fact, righteousness is not about outward performance at all. It's about inward character. It's about what I think and what I feel. Jesus recognizes that murder starts with an angry feeling, often expressed in an insult. The act of adultery starts with desiring the body of someone other than our spouse, fantasizing about our own sexual fulfillment, objectifying and dehumanizing others. Jesus knows the elaborate hierarchy of oath-taking hid underlying deceit and selfishness. In each case, Jesus traces the eternal effect to the internal cause. He looks at the heart of the matter and looks straight into our hearts. God has always, Jesus is saying, been concerned with what is in the heart of his people. And Jesus says that we obey God and please him in our hearts. That's where it starts. Now, his aim is not to like make life more difficult for us, his followers, but it certainly does raise the bar, doesn't it? And to make matters worse, Jesus raises the stakes because the consequences of not achieving these demands are seemingly dire. Jesus' warnings are stark. The angry person will be subject to judgment just as much as the murderer. Those who insult another will be in danger of the fire of hell, verse 22. And the word for hell here is Gehenna. And Gehenna is a valley outside of Jerusalem. It was the rubbish dump where rubbish was put and burned. And Jesus is saying, if we rubbish someone else, we shall be rubbished by God. God will throw us out like a piece of trash. And the warnings in verse 27 to 29 are even stronger. The language is grotesquely graphic. The repetition emphasizes the point, which is clear enough. If you lust after another woman or a man, you will be thrown into hell. Jesus mentions the word hell seven times in Matthew's gospel, and three are in this passage. And finally, when dealing with oath-taking, Jesus says it comes from the evil one. That is the devil, the father of lies. Could there be a more damning indictment of lying? How do you respond to this? I suppose you could argue that it's all hyperbole. The figure of speech that Jesus uses, the antithesis, you've heard that, but I say this. The categorical statements, truly I tell you. The logical argument 
without exception, if A then B, if C then D. It's all just exaggeration. It's rhetoric of a fire and brimstone preacher, not to be taken seriously. But friends, I think we do need to take it seriously. We need to consider who is speaking here. It's not some dodgy TV evangelist. This is the king of the universe. Jesus just doesn't speak the truth. He is the truth. We can't just dismiss what he says. We need to listen to it. Feel the weight of his words and the stark absoluteness of his statements. Now, I think if I stopped there and sat down, we would be left in a perilously desperate state. Because none of us meet these standards, do we? Not even for a day. And now we know there are terrible consequences. What now? The pit. John Bunyan's slough of despond, the deep bog into which the Christian sinks under the weight of his own sins and a sense of guilt and shame. Is that it? Fortunately, not. Now, if you're still with me, rest assured, because now the only way is up. I take off my theologian hat and I put on my pastoral hat. Jesus himself is the most compassionate person that's ever lived. And even in the stark and frankly scary teaching, he is pastoring his flock. And he offers great practical advice. He loves us. So he speaks so forcefully for our benefit. He is warning us. Firstly, he's warning that we need to take sin seriously. Now, Jesus' preference for self-mutilation over sinning is not to be taken literally. Unlike Oregon, bishop of the third century who castrated himself on the basis of this teaching, gentlemen, I'm not going to recommend you do the same. Not literally, but certainly seriously. Let me be as blunt as Jesus. Sin leads to hell. It must be taken seriously. As Don Carson, professor of New Testament, puts it, we must not pamper sin, flirt with it, enjoy nibbling a little of it around your edges as if it were a bar of chocolate. We are to hate it, crush it, dig it out. The word is mortification. It means to put to death. It's such an old-fashioned word, isn't it? And sadly, it comes to describe an old and outdated concept. But that's what we've got to do. Put it to death. Not mutilation, but mortification. Secondly, we are to preempt sin. And Jesus' illustration against lust tells us that. If our eyes cause us to sin, then we simply mustn't look. In the Old Testament, Job worked this out when he said this, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. If my heart has been led by my eyes, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, that would have been wicked, a sin to be judged. 
Friends, we need to control our eyes. Now, I know in today's culture, this is difficult. The media is saturated with images that are designed to arouse lust for the sake of pleasure, to elicit desire, just to sell something as innocuous as a soft drink. Well, we need to consider seriously what we're looking at, what we are reading, what we are watching on the TV or on the web. Now, just to be clear here, the English translation in verse 28, using the adverb lustfully, doesn't quite get what the Greek means, which is a purpose clause. It says really, literally, whoever looks at a woman in order to lust for her. So lust isn't something incidental that just happens, which will happen naturally to some of us. But it's the deliberate intention to look at somebody to satisfy one's own desire. Now, I'm not going to lay down any rules, except let's be clear, pornography is a no-no. Surely you know that. But our temperaments vary, and so do our temptations. Some things will cause us to stumble, but they'll be fine for someone else. So what's important is that we know our hearts. We know our hearts. And we help other people to know their hearts as well. Some trusted people. And if your hand causes you to sin, well, don't turn the TV on late at night and start channel hopping just to see what comes up. And if your foot causes you to sin, well, don't go to that bar or to that nightclub or even to the beach. So we need to preempt sin. And thirdly, we need to sort it out. This is the force of verses 23 26. The person at the church should stop worshipping, leave his gift at the altar. Somebody this morning said, leave your wallet at the altar and go and be reconciled. The debtor should quickly settle matters before the debt can never be repaid. There is an urgency here. We need to do it, sort it out, and do it now. The smallest slight confessor into a burning resentment that can last for years. I had two great aunts in my family that didn't speak to each other for 20 years because they fell out over who was going to buy the pram for my father. 20 years they didn't speak to one another and that divided them and the whole family into two camps. If you think that something's not quite right between you and another, go sort it out. The trivial compromise can lead to the gravest moral failure. Nip it in the bud. Now, while I have my pastoral hat on, I want to talk briefly about divorce. But only briefly, and now that may be a relief to some and a disappointment to others because it's obviously a significant topic and one that affects us all here, I think, directly or indirectly in family and friends. It's a controversial topic and it's a complex topic. 
And most importantly, it deals with people's deepest emotions. Uh, frankly, it deserves much more time than I have here, probably a sermon or seminar in its own right. But I want to say just a few things. Firstly, Jesus' teaching here on divorce is not everything that either he says or even the New Testament says. So it must be taken in its entirety. And even Jesus here in his most categorical of the statements that he makes, he says there's an exception here. He lists one. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 lists another. So it's a complex issue. And really, each personal circumstance must be considered not with law, but with godly wisdom to discern what the right cause of action is at that particular, maybe your, circumstance. So as a team of ministers here, we pass to people where they're at in relation to the covenant that they're currently under. Be that the first marriage, be that be it a second marriage. What vows are you under and how can we encourage you and support you to keep those vows? And I'm conscious of what I've said on this topic or others may raise issues with you and you would like to talk more and, and, and seek guidance and as a pastoral team we are more than happy to do that if you haven't got somebody close to you to share that with. There'll be an answer, a question time after this, the sermon but Stu would also direct you to some resources but please if you want to speak to somebody please do it now. If you're struggling with any particular issues that I've raised, don't struggle alone. And despite helpful advice from Christ here, and the advice that we will give you, some of us will fall. No, all of us will fall. Occasionally. Some spectacularly. And what then? The fire of hell? Friends, it's essential that we put this passage into the teaching of the New Testament as a whole and its message of saving grace. Remember how this Sermon on the Mount starts. What's the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when we preached on this several weeks ago, we said we will come back to this sentiment and now is the time. Because haven't Jesus' demands of righteousness in our passage today left us once again mindful of our own spiritual poverty, of our moral bankruptcy. And once again we come back to the death of Christ and our dependency not on our righteousness, but on his righteousness. It's no wonder that Paul, that most Pharisee of Pharisees, states in his letter to Philippians that his own spiritual assets are rubbish. This is what he said we heard read earlier. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness that comes of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. 
the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Grace is what saves us. Not keeping the law. Not our own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. And he goes on to say, I want to know Christ and the power of the resurrection. So we don't struggle alone in this. Not only are we just together in a community, but we have the power of Christ's resurrection, the Holy Spirit, to help us live the way that Christ wants us to live as his disciples. It's the life in the kingdom. Imagine what this life could be like. Imagine a world where relationships are not soiled by brooding anger, broken by disdain or hatred, never end in murder. Imagine a world where women and men, for that matter, are not treated as merely objects to be possessed and leered at. Imagine a world where even the closest covenantal relationship of marriage was always a perfect fulfillment of the biblical ideal of one flesh. Imagine a society where everybody's word could be trusted. A yes means yes. A no means no. There's no lying, no spin, no propaganda, just truth. This is life in the kingdom. And those in the kingdom, when we follow Jesus' laws and delight in them, then this is the life that is available to us. This is the life that we are called to. This is the life that we can live under the saving grace of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what kind of life is that? It's a blessed life. It's the blessed life. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word to us tonight. And we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his righteousness. We thank you through, for grace that comes from faith in him. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that comes from believing in him. Lord, we thank you for this community we thank you for close Christian friends to walk together with as we live life in the kingdom. And Lord, we so want to live in this way, to please you and to glorify you and for the sake of all those around us. Help us, we pray, to do this, that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name. Amen.